Let's turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're in our study of the book of Acts on Sunday morning, a series called Unfinished. Luke began, uh, the author of Acts, to record all those things that Jesus began to do and to teach, Acts 1.1. And so we're in our study of the book of Acts. And last week in the section where we're at in Acts chapter 9 is probably the story of one of the most dramatic conversions of all church history, the most unlikely of all conversions. And that was the conversion of Saul, or I'll probably say Paul, but we're talking about the same person. And he was the most unlikely candidate because by his own words and actions, he was a fierce opponent of this Christian group. He was a persecutor. In Galatians 1, he gives one of his testimonies where he states and how he tried to destroy the church. He tried to destroy the church, but God had other plans. And, And what is a great testimony about Saul or Paul is that to think that he could be reached by God as I said last week, would be almost the equivalent or thinking that one of the ayatollahs in Iran would get saved and become an evangelist. I mean, is that impossible? Of course it's not impossible. Anything is possible. But even when Paul was converted uh, that on the road to Damascus and the Lord Jesus appeared before him, he sent him into the city of Damascus, and Damascus is in Syria. We still hear about Damascus. We still hear about Syria in the news. It's still in play. And he sent him into the city. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 9 that God had a choice disciple by the name of Ananias. And when God told Ananias of how he was to reach out to Saul, Ananias wanted to make sure that God didn't get his wires crossed. And if you read it, uh, he says, Don't you know who this guy is and the evil that he has brought on us? And God says, he is one of my chosen servants. That's what he says in Galatians 1, that as he was trying to destroy the church, he said, but God, who separated me from my mother's womb, uh, chose me unto salvation, chose me for the mission and the purpose of reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. So that's, that's who we're, where we're at this morning in Acts chapter 9 in this dramatic conversion. And I want you to look with me at verses 20 through 25, because after his conversion, Paul began to bear the fruits of conversion. He began to show evidences of conversion, and immediately he began to share and witness and preach and talk about Jesus Christ. He couldn't help it. Now, that was amazing, especially those who were around, because they thought it was some, some scam. They thought it was some scheme of him trying to get his worm his way into the church in order to destroy them. But it was genuine. And in your Bibles, Acts chapter 9, it should be on the screen. You can follow along in verse, beginning of verse 20. It says, and after his conversion, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Right there, we could just stop there and talk about what a powerful statement that was. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus. Don't miss this. When a person is genuinely converted, when they're genuinely saved, they are going to talk about, they're going to share the experience of the relationship they have with Jesus. That just goes with it. And that, we see that in verse 20. In verse 21, it says, and all who heard him were amazed. Of course they were, and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, 
we see that it was in Acts chapter 7 that it was this Saul, Paul, who was holding the coats of those who killed and stoned Stephen, one of the deacons of the church. So we, we, we always share that with our deacons to let them know what they might get into. But Saul, it says, at the end of that chapter 7, he's holding the coats. He was the instigator, and we even see this here. He was the driving force between, uh, of the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem. And so they said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? He was going to Damascus. He was chasing them down. He was, he was pursuing them. Verse 22, but Saul, Paul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was a formidable witness, this Saul, this Paul. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. They had to do something about this guy. He was going to cause all sorts of trouble, and so they plotted to kill him. Verse 25, but his disciples, his followers, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, I don't know exactly how this plot uh, of killing Saul, killing Paul, how that got known to him, but here he was in Damascus, and he was trapped. He couldn't get out. He had people looking for him, people wanting to kill him, and so his followers, his disciples, came up with a very clever plan. They came up with a clever plan to help him rescue, verse 25, and they took Paul at night so he wouldn't be seen, and they put him in a basket, secured the basket, I assume with ropes, and they lowered him to safety through a window. Now, something that's helpful to understand is that in the old city of Damascus, it was fortified or surrounded by walls, probably, I know the walls in Jerusalem were maybe uh, 40, 50 feet, so let's just assume that uh, they were at least uh, 50 feet. That would have been approximately four stories, five story building, okay, to give you an idea of the height. And the, what uh, took place that inside the city walls of the old city of Damascus, that they would build homes along the wall or attached to the wall and would have various levels. And so what they would do on the, if they built a home or some kind of apartment or some kind of dwelling against the inside of the wall of the city of Damascus, they would, uh, they would knock out maybe some bricks or stones or whatever and make themselves a window where they could see outside of the, of, the, of, the, of the wall, of the fortress. So here you have, that gives you a little idea of how they were able to do this. They, at night, they're going to lower him down in a basket outside of the wall so that he could escape because I'm sure all the gates and everything, they were watching, the, watching those all very closely. And, I, you know, I think, okay, that was uh, no easy task. I mean, you figure Paul, maybe 150 pounds or so, uh, and there, that would be, um, I was trying to think, uh, 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 maybe like a sofa, that may be 130, 40 pounds, you know. So it isn't just one guy, you know, it's, uh, I mean, over a wall, and you have people looking for you and watching you. So that was their method, and it enabled Paul to escape because Paul had a calling and work to do. Paul was able to escape because there was people who were willing to be role holders. There were people willing 
to serve Paul by holding the rope. Um, Think of their attitude. The Bible doesn't give names of who these people are. Rope, uh, these, uh, those who held the ropes are anonymous. We don't know their names. We don't know anything about them. We don't know their occupations. We don't know their jobs. We don't, we don't know anything about them, but they're anonymous. They're also, uh, these individuals that held these ropes, there's, they're courageous. Because not only were they uh, assisting Paul, but by aiding and abetting a criminal... In the, in, in, the, in the sense of that he was being searched for to kill him, they were putting themselves at risk. Uh, they, were, they held the ropes optimistically. Uh, they didn't know this man's future, but God knew his future, right? They didn't know what was ahead. They didn't know that all that Paul would accomplish. They didn't know that the apostle Paul would write uh, about two-thirds of the New Testament. They didn't know that Someday, because of Paul's mission and his work, that the gospel would spread into uh, the Roman world, even as far away as Spain. They didn't know that. And they held the ropes patiently. They stayed until the task was complete. They didn't quit. They let the basket down. They didn't drop it. They held on until Paul was safely on the ground. And I got thinking about verse 25 and this idea of these anonymous people. And what were they doing? What was their, their purpose and calling at that moment was to be a rope holder. Wasn't real glamorous, was it? Wasn't real, uh, their names weren't in the Jerusalem Gazette or the, the church newsletter, but they played a significant role in securing Paul's safety because they accomplished and did what they were asked to do. Now, I know ropes are not mentioned specifically in this task, but they had to use something. And rope was probably the most obvious, a rope, a sheet. I doubt they had a chain, but something to lower Paul down to the wall. And so thinking about that, I just thought I wanted to, normally we take a larger passage, but this morning I thought I would just take that concept that we see in verse 25 as a principle and, and dwell on it a little bit. Give, draw our attention to verse 25. And so this morning, the title is, Will You Hold the Rope? Will You Hold the Rope? And so I want to recognize the rope holders. Rope holders in the kingdom are usually behind the scenes. They're anonymous. Their names, they don't have special parking places for them. Uh, they don't get written up a lot about. It. They don't get a lot of Facebook uh, uh, acknowledgments, or but they're rope holders. They're the ones that if they weren't doing what they were doing, the work of the church or the work of the kingdom at large uh, wouldn't get done. It wouldn't get accomplished. And so this morning we're going to draw three applications and talk about rope holders and ask, "Will you hold the rope?" And if you want to have kind of a, a a big idea of what we're talking about, it's this, is that the work of the kingdom, the work of the kingdom advances, moves forward, and we're seeing that here, it moves forward because of the faithful service of those who were willing to hold the rope. Notice with me a few thoughts around this idea of application is that number one is holding the rope means that there's somebody significant on the other end. When you're engaged in kingdom service, 
You're not just engaged in doing your own thing. You're using this metaphor of holding the rope. It means that there's someone connected to what you're doing. You're holding the rope. These disciples, they didn't have any idea who was in their basket. They didn't like, hey, you better be careful, Fred, uh, because, you know, that's the Apostle Paul. No, he was, they were still skeptical. Now, maybe this is just my imagination, but maybe one of them holding the rope said, you know what, I don't trust him. Let's just drop him now and get it over with, right? Maybe not. They knew he was some kind of preacher of some kind, some kind of probably knew he was a Pharisee. They knew that he had recently been converted to faith in Christ. And and there's no way in their wildest dreams they could imagine who was on the other end of that rope. What's the point? The point is is that oftentimes uh, you never know who is on the other end of your rope of serving that is being served and benefited uh, that your basket of influence, who God has you connected with, someone that you're serving, someone that you're holding the rope for them to advance and where God would have them to go. Encourages us to be faithful, realizing that God has you and me in this person's life for a reason. God has us in, a, in this person's life for a reason. God, you know, God has you. If you're if you're a, a part of this body, this church, and you're connected to this church, you're not just connected because of me or somebody. You're connected because God has called you to this church. We're here holding the rope, if we could say, and your influence is affecting someone else. And that someone else may not necessarily be someone that from the outer appearance you think, well, you know, they're not very significant. Everyone that God has made, hello, is significant. Man judges by the what? Outward appearance. How would we have judged Saul? Converted? Yeah, I don't know. I don't buy into that. Yeah, it'll be some flame for a while, We'll see him get all excited. He'll probably buy a big Bible and walk around. And, but, you know, give him three or four months. Man judges by the outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. I re- remember reading the story. Uh, how many of you know who Rick Warren is? Ever heard that name before? I think most of you have heard that name. But what's interesting is a story that I heard about him or he's told this several times, and of course he's written the Purpose Driven Life uh, books and Purpose Driven Church and Pastor Saddleback Community Church in uh, Southern California. And uh, when he was probably in the 70s, when he was in seminary, not cemetery, seminary, uh, at the uh, Southwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, he was attending seminary there, and one of the great preachers of the 20th century, the great churches of the 20th century is, and still is, was more under W.A. Criswell, was First Baptist Church of Dallas. I think um, uh, Jeffress, I think that's who pastors there now. But Dr. Criswell was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, and that was one of the uh, handful of what we would call mega churches. I mean, they averaged 10 to 12, 13,000 people that would come 
on a weekend, on a Sunday, multiple services on Sunday, and this is, this is in the 70s. And so being a uh, preacher boy, he wanted to go meet Dr. Criswell and shake his hand, go to the service at First Baptist. And I've had the privilege of being in the old First Baptist church uh, many years ago. Never got to meet uh, Dr. Criswell. He's uh, been in heaven for many, many years now. And so on the day that Rick Warren and the friend went to hear Dr. Criswell, something interesting happened, uh, Rick Warren recounts. And at the end of the service, they were standing in line to greet their hero, Dr. Criswell, one of the Again, one of the stalwarts for the authority of Scripture and just, just a great man of God. And as he met Dr. Criswell, Dr. Criswell laid his hand on Rick Warren's shoulder. Man, he's just, he's just a student. He, he's not really anybody of, of certainly nobody would know that name. And Dr. Criswell prayed somewhat of a, of, a, of a, if you could say it this way, a prophetic prayer. He wasn't prophesying, but he was, it was a prayer that certainly was prophetic in its wording. And he prayed that Rick Warren would someday pastor a church that would be twice as big as First Baptist Dallas. Now, at that time, First Baptist was maybe 12, 13, and today Saddleback Church is almost 25,000 people that attend over a weekend in attendance. You see now, there's no way anybody humanly could look at that guy and think, he, uh, he will never amount to much. Rick Warren even says, there wasn't a lot going for me. But you know what? Little is much when he's in the hands of God. So don't underestimate the significance of the person who's on the other end of the rope that you're holding and that you're serving. And that's, uh, uh, you see that, again, that principle of just serving and, and believing that God has a purpose for everyone, that's just Christianity 101. That's a basic principle that we as a church need to be reminded of every once in a while. And that, let me just get a commercial in here as going back to being connected and, and, and being involved in people's lives, whether it's our home group or a small group or some, some context where you're interacting with people. If this is it, if this is all you do in Grace Church, you are limiting yourself and you're limiting the gifts and abilities that God has given you to impart in other people. And so our church, we are wanting to be intentional about fostering and growing these relationships so that we have multiple rope holders that have a lot of people on the end of their line, that they're influencing a lot of people. And the only way you can do that, you can't do it by staring at the back of people's heads on Sunday morning, but you can do it just like the great home group you guys had last night and saw those pictures uh, on uh, Facebook. We're connecting. You see, when we're born again, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls that the Spirit of Christ. That means our desires begin to change to the desires of Jesus, right? All of a sudden, the things that are important to Christ, they become important to us. And Philippians 2 speaks about how Jesus, being God, a very God, came in the form of a servant, right? And if we don't have a servant's heart, if we don't have a desire to, to see the significance in one another and say, God, use me to impact and build that person's life. Second principle for rope holders is a reminder, secondly, is that holding the rope means that small tasks often have eternal value. Small. You ever heard of the word menial? Menial, it's a menial task. I looked up that word menial. I wanted to make sure what it meant. Menial 
And the Webster Dictionary says, work that requires little skill or training is not interesting and confers low status on somebody doing it. Another definition is, it said it's work that is suitable for or done by or relating to a servant or servants. It's not glamorous. It's dirty work, okay? It's messy work. It's not exciting work. I'm trying to think if I should tell because I want to make sure this person is not here. I think they're not here, so I'm safe. But there was somebody in this church who moved away under good circumstances, um, but they were serving somebody else in need of this body who is not here. This is a little while back. And what meant to be a our errand ended up being an all-day trip to Tampa and back and uh, forgot something, had to go back. And the thing that I admired about this person, they're, 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 they didn't need that to prove their servant heart, but it just reminded me of what a stinker I am. Because I would have been said, look, I don't got all day for this stuff. You know, I mean, I mean come on, I'll, I'll... And I just realized, huh? Well, no, I'm just... Whatever, put, fill it in. But it really humbled me because they did it. Yeah, it was inconvenient. You know what? But they didn't, they didn't gripe about it the way I would have griped about it. I was griping, and I wasn't even doing the errand. How many of you ever watch uh, America's Dirtiest Jobs, Mike Rowe? Now, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I can't even watch that show. I get sick to my stomach at some of the stuff. Uh, have you ever done a menial job? I remember one of my menial jobs was... Um, in 1981, and I was in Baltimore, Maryland, getting ready to do an internship at a church there, and I got there, and within a few days, I realized the church was getting ready to go through a split, and I thought, well, great. And so I was there, and I got a job at Cloverland Dairy. You know what that is if you're from Baltimore. Did I say it right? Baltimore. And I, my job was what was happening is the uh, milk trucks when they would come in at the end of the day, that there was a problem with the drivers selling products out of the truck in the neighborhoods and pocketing the money, right? I think in Baltimore they call that stealing, right, and all. So a friend of mine who was also the pastor of the church I was going to be serving got me this job, and I had, to, I had to take a bus down. I was living in Brooklyn area. You know where that is. She's from Baltimore. Who else is from? Anybody else from Baltimore? Okay. All right. Yeah, there you go, Connie. And so I was living in the Brooklyn area, which, you know, anyway, let you figure it out. So took it downtown, took a couple of buses, and I had this job. And I was like, are you kidding me? I hate this job. And I had to go on the back of the trucks, and I had to take the sheets and make sure that what they said was turned in, okay, cheese, whatever they were doing. And I just griped about that. It was just a mean, like, good grief, you know? I mean, I've gone through one year of college. I'm more qualified to do stuff, right? Well, it was about my level of intellect at that point. So, so menial tasks, guess what? The kingdom of God has lots of jobs that are menial and don't have a lot of significance. But there's something that Jesus puts a little emphasis on. You don't have to turn to it, but I would, perhaps you may want to look and record it in your note uh, in Matthew 25, 
verse 35, to see what Jesus thinks if there's any menial task in the kingdom. When he said, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in person or in prison and visit you? And verse 40, Matthew 25 says, and the king, notice the king will answer them, and he says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you finish it. You did it unto me. Do you think Jesus puts a premium on menial, insignificant task? No. Because it goes back to the first point. When you are holding the rope for one of his significant children, if you do something kind for one of my children, I don't care what it is. It's of great value to me. If you show kindness to one of my children, don't give them money, but if you show kindness to one of my children, <laughs> you know what that does to Papa's father's heart? It makes me real grateful for your compassion and your love. How much more does God's heart? Obviously, it, and, the, and that's a picture of the final day of judgment. You see, we're judged in Christ. It's not a judgment on salvation. That's a judgment of rewards. And so he's recognizing all the menial things. He wouldn't call it menial, but the acts of kindness you did. He says, as much as you've done it to the least of these, what maybe, maybe the world would call insignificant people, unto the least of these, he says, you have done it unto me. So when you stop at the corner up there by Zaxby's in 98 and someone is holding a sign and you remember you have three or four bucks in your console and you give it to them. You know what? It's not my role what they do with it. God just said, if I got it, I'll give it to you. If I have it, if I have something, if I got change, whatever. My wife doesn't give me any money, so I don't have a lot of money all the time. No, seriously. If I have it, if I remember there's something in there, I'll do it. Why? That's an image bearer. Do you realize that? That's not just some bomb. Don't say those things. What if that was one of your children? A bomb. Yeah? No, they're image bearers of Christ. What about some menial tasks of the church? Maybe less dramatic. What about just something simply like being willing to pick up and put down chairs when we have an event? What about working in the nursery, volunteering as a helper with, with the children? That's holding the rope. Chaperoning for a student ministry event, which is a growing, coming need that we will have because of our growing student ministry. How about cleaning up when we have a dinner on the grounds? I notice when you all bolt out that door, 
And people say, hey, I want to be a leader. Let me tell you something. If you can't help and do something menial, like help clean up, you don't need to be a leader. Because the first priority of a leader is to be a servant, not to be the first one out with the leftover chicken and corn casserole to get to the door before anybody sees you. You can see this is important to me. But see, the church will be cleaned up because we've got great rope holders here. It's going to get taken care of. But you're missing something that I believe the Lord is wanting to work in your life and to be a servant. Being a servant oftentimes isn't when it's convenient. It's when you want to get home. You've been here all day. You're full. You're fat and happy. You're ready to go home. The last thing you want to do is put these chairs back into this row. Listen, whoever designed this system certainly loved to torture people. Because if you've been involved in trying to get these chairs, am I right, staff and others who do this? Right? Uh, Yeah, right. All right, I'm getting off mark here. How about sweeping off grass and debris on Sunday mornings around the front doors? What about volunteering? I mentioned this earlier about driving a van on Sunday nights to and from so that some of our students can get to a student event here at the church. How about picking up someone for church and taking them home on Sundays like Lucinda has done and others have done who've needed to do that. Calling someone who's not here. Well, I haven't seen so-and-so in a few weeks. Have you thought about writing them a note, calling them? Coming early. Here, here's a difficult one. How about coming a little early on Sunday morning when some of us are here drinking coffee or whatever, just with the intentionality of meeting and talking to people? Is that hard? No, it's not hard. Jack Canfield, some of you may not remember that name, but some of you may uh, have some of the books, Chicken Soup for whatever. They got a whole series. Some of them I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but some are better than others. Various stories in there. But Jack Canfield tells a story about a man by the name of Mark. Listen to this. While walking home from school, Mark noticed the boy ahead of him had stumbled to the ground and dropped everything he was carrying. And Mark hurried to the boy's side and helped him collect his belongings. Surprisingly, the boy was carrying an especially uh, heavy load. And there was, in this uh, load of stuff he was carrying, there was a baseball glove and a bat, a couple of sweaters, a small tape recorder, and an armful of books. Mark helped him carry the things home. And his new friend, Bill was most appreciative of his compassion. And during the walk home, Mark discovered that Bill was struggling in school and had just broken up with his girlfriend. And when they arrived at Bill's house, he invited Mark in for a soda, and they spent the rest of the afternoon talking, laughing, and watching TV. Although the two boys never became real close friends, they kept up with each other throughout the rest of junior high and high school. And several weeks before graduation, Bill approached Mark and asked him if he remembered that day they met when Mark helped him with all his stuff. And Mark, of course, nodded that he did remember. And Bill then asked him this question. He said, did you ever wonder why I was carrying all that stuff that day? And without pausing for an answer, Bill explained that he cleaned out his locker and was going home to take his life. He had been storing away sleeping pills and was headed home to end it all when Mark happened along to help him out. 
Bill told Mark how that simple act of compassion inspired him to go on living. My friends, you will never know what a hug, a word of encouragement, a note, a breakfast, a lunch. When you're holding the rope for somebody, it may be the rope of life or death. Third observation is holding the rope means that there will be a sacrificial cost. I alluded to this earlier that when they lowered Paul, Saul over the wall, he was, people were after him to kill him. And in helping him, the disciples, these men, would face persecution and death themselves. And so if you're going to be a rope holder, one of the things you need to understand is that holding the rope, using this as a, as a picture, sometimes carries a price. Sometimes it carries a cost. You see, serving Christ should be joyful, right? should be joyful. It should bring an assurance in our lives of, of living for Christ. But as we begin to live for Christ, as we begin to live out for Christ, guess what? We're gonna, we live in a culture that is not always welcoming of Christ. They're not excited about the message you heard from your wonderful pastor on Sunday morning. They don't care. You say, I don't care. Well, you need to care this morning. I'm kidding. There's a cost. See, some of us, <laughs> we would much rather sometimes write a check. And sometimes, listen, checks are welcome here. I don't want to discourage that. Visa, MasterCard, we take it all here. Go online. Cougarans, you know, Franks, we'll, we'll convert it. We'll We'll share the gospel and convert them, all right? So, but you know what God wants? He saved us. I love a scripture, and so, just listen to this, 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 5, and what's cool about it is it's in the context about giving. You've heard this before. We've talked about giving. It's in the context of financial giving, and Paul says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means of their own accord, and, the, and that these... These, these people were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging for opportunities to give more. And he said, and this we did not expect, but here's the key. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us, Paul says. You see, giving isn't about a guilt trip. It's not about just laying it on you. It's that when you give yourself to the Lord, you recognize that my time, my talent, my treasures, all of those things are at the disposal of the king for his purpose and use. And if he needs me to hold the rope in some giving aspect that might cost me time, money, effort, or whatever, if it's for the master's service, I want to hold that rope. That would have been a great place to say amen. Thank you, all 12 of you. All right. Now, see, you remind me, when you start talking about cost, you remind me of a sermon this preacher preached. And this preacher was a, he was a revivalist, and he, he could really preach his way and get things stirred up. And he said, if this church is ever going to serve God, it's got to get down on its knees and crawl. And the audience said, preacher, make it crawl. Preacher, make the church crawl. And he was just getting started. And once this church learned to crawl... 
It's got to get on its feet, and it's got to walk. And boy, they were getting excited. Make it walk, preacher. Make it walk. And once the church has learned to walk, it's got to learn to run. And boy, they were revved up by this point. They said, preacher, let us run. Let us run. He said, now in order to run, it's going to cost us. And we got to reach down into our pockets. And we got to learn to give. There was a pause. And they said, preacher, let it crawl. Let it crawl. When we hold the rope, we're always connected to someone significant on the other end. There's never any insignificant, worthless task. Every small effort is kingdom work. And there will always and usually will be a cost in some measure, time, talent, or treasure of us holding the rope for Jesus, for someone. Whatever the sacrifice, it will be worth it. So my question this morning goes back to the title of the sermon. The question is, will you, will you hold the rope? Will you be one of those kingdom servants in the life of someone else? Are you going to be available when someone has a need? Someone asks, are you going to be one of those that's willing to hold the other end of the rope and serving for someone? I, love, I just kept thinking about this in Mark 14. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's the story of when the woman came and broke the alabaster box of perfume. Uh, in Mark, he doesn't identify it, but in another place, we know that it's Mary, the sister of Martha, the, bro- the sister of Lazarus. And Mary uh, broke this perfume, uh, expensive perfume, uh, over the feet of Jesus. Now, do you remember what the religious folks and even some of his own crowd, do you remember their response? Well, that's a waste of money. That would have been much better to sell that and give it to the lighthouse ministry than for her to waste it basically on Jesus. And I love something Jesus said that struck me and it fits here. He says, remember that's the phrase that sometimes we'll use this as an excuse to ignore the poor. Well, the poor you always have with you. Sometimes I've said that shamefully. Well, the poor you always have with you and Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. And then Jesus says this next statement that you need to hear, Mark 14, verse 8, but in referring to Mary, he says, but she has done what she could. And he commends that. And I say, Jesus, am I doing what I can? Am I doing everything that I can for your purpose and for your glory. God doesn't ask you to do. Isn't that the parable of the talents? He didn't ask you to do what somebody else has been given, right? He's not requiring you to do what he's asked me to do or somebody else. Whatever. He's saying, can you and have you and will you do what you can do? Are you willing to hold a rope? I'm going to ask our ushers. They're going to pass something out to you this morning. And everybody take one of these. It's not a sign-up card, but guess what it is? It's a little piece of what? A little piece of rope. And when you take one of these, I want this to be a little reminder to you with this question, am I holding the rope? Am I holding the rope for somebody in my life, in my sphere of influence? Am I holding the rope for 
the gospel? Am I holding the rope? And am I being faithful with what God has given me to do? It won't fit around your wrist. I know some of you are already taking it as a decorative item. I saw that back there. Will you hold the rope? And as you're passing those out, pay attention to the screen. And let me give you some some suggestions of some ropes to hold as we conclude this morning. How about this one? Hold the rope of loving one another. How about hold the rope of just loving each other? 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Basic stuff, right? If you love God, you cannot help but love his children, right? And if we're loving the way God has loved us, guess what? We can just stop right there and everything's good. That's a good place to start. Hold the rope of loving one another. How about secondly, hold the rope of praying for one another? Are you praying? Are you interceding? You're really praying. When you say, I'll pray for you, do you even remember it? Lisa's having surgery on Thursday. Some of you know that. Some of you know where. Will you pray? Would you like people to pray for you? Absolutely you would, right? And some of you, to pray. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Hold the rope of prayer for one another. Pray for your pastor. If you can do anything for me, will you pray for me? Will you pray for Sherry and me? I hope you do. I hope you will. Third, hold the rope of encouragement, encouraging one another. You look at this rope, you think, who, who can I encourage? You're around some people, they never say anything good. How about this? You're around some people, they never say anything. Never say anything. How about start encouraging and just being deliberative and saying maybe somebody on our worship team, you point them out and say, Don, man, that bass, that was great. Melissa, that guitar really adds and it does. It adds a lot. You think they would want to hear that? Do you think those who come early and greet, do you think those that come early and have coffee ready and all those? How about all those that are beyond these doors? I'm looking in a window of a nursery and kids workers. Do you think they would like to hear, thank you? I don't have kids, but thank you. Do you think that's a good thing? You bet it is. And I'll be honest with you. We need to step it up because we could do better in that area. We can say more encouraging words. In that passage, we won't look at it, but you know what immediately followed is that Paul went to Jerusalem, and guess what? Nobody in Jerusalem would have had anything to do with him except one guy that said, I'll, I'll vouch for him, and his name was what? Do you guess? Barnabas. It means son of an encouragement, son of encouragement. Barnabas said, I'll vouch for him. I'll affirm him. I'll encourage him. What does the Scripture say? 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, do what? Encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. There's 59 places that say one another in the New Testament. You can't do that watching television on Sunday mornings. you got to be here. This is what we're doing. 
Be in a connection group. Be somewhere you're interacting with people that God has placed. Be someone that's going to hold that rope in this church. Another good place to say amen. How about this rope? Do we need the rope to hold to forgiving one another? Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, doesn't say whether it's legitimate or not, does it? What does it say? Forgiving each other. How? As the Lord. How has the Lord forgiven you? Way more than, I don't care what they've done, I guarantee you. It's nothing compared to what our sin is before him that we've been forgiven. It's not on the screen, but I love Romans 12, 18. It's a reminder speaking about be at peace with all. And it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Well, you don't know what they've done. As long as it depends on you, make peace. And sometimes making peace means holding your peace. The message translation says, keeping your mouth closed. I need to have that emblazoned on my desk. And last, hold the rope of serving one another. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it. Use it to do what? Just sit at home and watch videos on that gift. Go to seminars on that gift. Get notebooks on notebooks of that gift. Teaching series of that gift. No. But as each has received a gift, and everyone has a spiritual gift, use it to do what? Serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Let's stand to our feet, Sherry. So, what are you going to do? Going to hold the rope. And say, so God, whose who's rope that I'm not currently holding that might be waiting for me to respond and say, God, I, I, I can hold that rope. I can love them. I can encourage them. I can forgive them. I can encourage them. Let's, Sherry, lead us just briefly in that.